I was glad when they said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Well, amen. Uh, it's good to be with you this morning. And um, I hope I don't speak for myself. It really just blessed my soul just hearing us as a congregation singing those truths. So I hope that uh, is an anchoring point for us that um, it should be a good reminder that uh, we're, we're doing this collectively. We're doing this uh, together as the people of God. So what, what a good reminder this morning. Uh, you could go ahead and flip uh, towards the end of the book of Psalms. Um, we're we're going to be continuing, actually wrapping up this morning. You know, we've been spending the past uh, five weeks in a collection of Psalms um, that um, people have termed the Psalms of Ascent. Because is this collection that's, you know, as, as we kind of explained a couple of weeks ago, it's the, the Psalms are not set up chronologically. It's not Psalm 1 was the earliest Psalm written and Psalm 150 is the oldest. They're in these groupings and they have specific purpose. And so there's this group of Psalms, uh, called the Psalms of Ascent that the, the people of God would use as a hymn book as they traveled to Jerusalem. And so, um, Jerusalem is a city on a hill. And not only that, the temple that was in Jerusalem was raised up. And so there was this act of if you were going to meet with God in the temple, you physically had to travel up. You had to ascend to up that hill. You had to raise yourself up to meet with God. And I love when physical meets metaphorical because there is this reality that anytime we want to go into the presence of God to meet with God, we have to raise ourselves up to him and he has made a way for us to do just that. And so I, I hope you've enjoyed the times we've spent in these Psalms. I know for me, um, they've gotten a lot more rich as I've just had the opportunity the past couple weeks to dig into them to, to prepare to, uh, to speak to you, and so I hope, I hope they've been a blessing to you, and so we will be ending our time um, in the Psalms of Ascent this morning in Psalm 130. Um, and so, like I said, I hope you have your, your copy of, of God's Word. And so we're going to read that, and then that will, will form the basis of our discussion this morning. Um, if, if you are able, and if you don't mind, would you mind just standing while we read the Word of God together in recognition of its authority in our lives? Psalm 130 says this, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And all God's people said, you may be seated. So we're just going to walk through this psalm together. And so if you notice right there at the beginning, uh, we can see from the author that he has found himself in a situation he does not want to be in. And so the very first line of the psalm recognizes that he's in this position where he says, out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. And so I don't know if you have found yourself at a moment in your life where you just feel like you are in the depths. And I love that image that it conveys. I just think of somebody stuck at the bottom of a well and it conveys this reality that they are out of other options, out of the depths I call to you. And I think there's probably a lot of situations in our lives that uh, we might just describe for ourselves that this was a moment where I felt like I was in a pit. 
And there are going to be different uh, reasons for that, different situations that might lend us there, maybe just something completely out of our control. And so I'm sure we can all relate to this reality of what this uh, author is feeling at this point of just crying out to God when you have no other options. But he gives some more specificity as to what actually has placed him in the depths. So he says, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. And then if you would look in verse 3, I think it clues us into what's going on in this specific situation. He says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And so this is this word we use, and sometimes it's interchangeable just with the word sin, but it is iniquity that has led this person to being in the depths and crying out to the Lord for mercy. And so you might, it might conjure an image from some other Old Testament passages if you think of the book of Jonah. We get these wonderful prayers from Jonah in the depths when he has literally been swallowed by a whale. And so Jonah has found himself in a specific predicament where he is in the depths with no other options. And so we can ask ourselves, and I think it will clue us into where we need to head this morning, is what led Jonah to being in that specific situation where he had no other options but to cry out to the Lord for mercy? It was his own rebellion that led him to the point where he was in the depths needing the mercy of God. And so that's what this word iniquity is talking about. And like I said, it could be interchangeable with the word sin. We translate different Hebrew words that way, but it does conjure this image. And so there are some different words that uh, evoke a different thought process, but iniquity really literally means like to stray off the path or to bend or to pervert. It is this idea that there is this right way to proceed and the iniquity is outside of that correct way to proceed. And so that's what's going on in this situation. And I think what we need to talk about this morning is that there is this reality in all of us that we are going to stray from what is right and what God would say is good and holy and pleasing to him. And when we do that, it's going to place our lives in a position where we have no other options but to throw ourselves at the mercy of God. And so I love um, that idea of kind of getting off the path. And I don't know if you've ever just been like lost in the woods or in the grocery store as a kid, but there is just this feeling that if you um, uh, find yourselves looking around and you no longer know where you are or how you got there, it it kind of brings to the mind the sense of panic within you. And so what we're going to have to ask ourselves this morning is when we find ourselves, and I'm not saying if we find ourselves, but when we find ourselves in that position, how are we going to respond? And for every single one of us, we will find ourselves in that position or are in that position currently because that speaks to the state of our soul with God. And so our God, being a holy, righteous creator, has set the universe in motion and set in place a moral law of how things are supposed to work. And every single one of us has strayed off of that path and we will find ourselves in a place where we have no other options but to turn to the Lord. But will we choose to do it? And so straying off the path is so easy. I did some Googling this week, and if you are um, trying to hit a target geographically, and um, if um, your path deviates by just one degree, within one foot, 
you will be off the mark by about 0.2 inches. But if you continue to carry out that trajectory farther and farther and farther, say you are going from earth to the sun, and I hope all of us are aiming for the sun this morning, but if you were going from earth to the sun and your path was off by one degree, you would end up 1.6 million miles off course. And let's just acknowledge that is an insurmountable gap for us to correct on our own. And so that's where we find ourselves this morning, that um, our author, and let's just go ahead and say, all of us ourselves have wandered into iniquity, that there is a path God has set forth for us, but by nature and by choice, we are a rebellious people. And so like Jonah, we've all had moments in our life where we knew God said to do this and we decided to run the other direction and that will um, um, eventually lend itself towards being a position where we have no other options and we're going to have to ask ourselves when we realize the state of our lives and our soul in regards to our sin before a holy God, what is going to be our response There's several verses this week that I'm going to reference just from the book of Isaiah and the prophecy there. But Isaiah 53 has this passage all about the coming Savior that's going to um, uh, rescue us. And one of the things it says in Isaiah 53, 6, it, it, it gives this same imagery. It says, all we like sheep have gone astray. And so um, the Bible compares us to sheep a lot, and I don't think it's a very admirable quality because really a sheep, you kind of wonder how they survived with, before domestication without a shepherd. They're kind of a dumb animal. And so they literally need an overseer to like, hey, don't wander off this cliff. That's a bad idea. Like, let's bring you back over and over and over again. And that's what the word of God says about us. And if we're probably being honest this morning, we know it's true. And so that's why I think everybody just sings a little bit more deeper and more resounding when we sing the old hymn and we say to the Lord, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Like we know that bent in us. Like we are not bent towards righteousness. Like it takes considerable effort in my own life uh, to do what I know is morally upstanding before the Lord because I know there is this draw and this pull in me away from the things of God, away towards my own will, my own desires, my own sinfulness, my own fleshliness. And so we're going to have to ask ourselves the question like, how are we going to deal with our own sin? Isaiah also said in Isaiah 59, he said, our sins have separated us from God. And so our iniquity, our sin, our straying away from a holy and righteous God is going to have to be dealt with. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, how are we going to deal with our sin? Jesus addresses this in in a lot of different ways in the New Testament, but I wanted to look at a specific way he talks about this issue because there are different ways we can attempt to address our own sin. We can take different attitudes. We can take different postures. We can take different actions. And more than likely, we have all tried the gamut of those different options, but hopefully we can uh, land all today at the end in the correct option, and that is throwing ourselves at the mercy of a holy God. But would you look with me in Luke chapter 18? I think it'll be instructive for us this morning. And so as he often did, Jesus is teaching in a parable to illustrate human nature. So this is what Jesus says in Luke 18, starting in verse 9. 
Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And so right here we have a perfect illustration of two different people's attempts to deal with their sin. And so we have the Pharisee, a religious person by nature who spent their life in church learning the things of God. And yet when it comes to the, um, the act of putting yourself before God and knowing you have to deal with the fact that you have strayed from what God has commanded you, he uses a couple of different strategies. And I've got to be honest, I've employed all of these strategies at some point in my life. And the first things he does is comparison. My life in comparison to somebody else's looks better, so therefore I'm okay. I don't do what that person does, so I must be okay. I don't fall into what this person does, and so I must be okay. Thanks God that I'm not like all these other sinners. I've been there. It is not hard to find somebody that looks a little bit worse than you do on the outside. It's just not that difficult. We could all probably do it in this room. If we search hard enough, we can find somebody worse than us. It's not that difficult. And so that's one of the strategies that he employs. And then another thing he employs is religious acts. So he's literally, um, in, in some ways, if you just reduce it, he's like, you know, I fast twice a week and I give a tithe of everything I have. He's literally trying to put God into his debt. So that's one of the strategies we could try to deal with our sin. Like, hey, God, I know I yelled at my wife this week, but hey, I gave really generously on Sunday. Uh, or God, maybe I am uh, being dishonest at my job, but I'm helping fund the church. He's literally trying to buy off God. It's really difficult to buy off somebody who owns everything. But I feel like that doesn't stop us from trying. And maybe it's not even in a, a, a moral sense or a, a self-righteous sense, but I know sometimes we can get very bent out of shape when uh, the circumstances in our life do not go the way that we think we should, and we charge God with that offense like, God, I've lived my whole life in church. Why have my kids wandered off the path? And so we try to put God in our debt through our uh, perceived righteous works like, God, you owe me because I have done all of these things. You can't buy off the God who has everything first. You're going to offer him money? It's his idea. Like he spoke things into existence. Like we can't purchase the grace of God. We can only receive it. And so we can try these things as a strategy in how we are going to deal and cope with our sin. We can try comparison. We can try obligating God on our behalf through our religious acts. But um, when you reach the end of the story, what does Jesus say about these two people? One of them went down justified, and it wasn't the one who tried to buy off God. No, it was the sinner. 
He didn't do anything complicated. He didn't do anything uh, exceptionally profound. He recognized his place, that he had nothing to offer God, and he didn't even feel worthy enough to lift up his eyes within the temple, but he just said a simple prayer. Have mercy on me, a sinner. And so we need to ask ourselves this morning how each of us individually are trying to deal with our own sin. Because our sin has separated us from God, and so our sin has to be dealt with. And what are we going to trust in? Because I think there's two great errors that are really easy for us to fall into in regards to us and our sin and a holy God. And one is illustrated right here with this um, Pharisee. One is thinking we are righteous enough on our own that we don't need salvation. And I, you know, I've, I've met some people that behave like that, but I honestly truly wonder who actually thinks that that they're a good person. If we are that so self-deceived that maybe we can look at others and know we're better than them, but who actually thinks in the depths of their heart or in the still and the quiet of the night that they are um, good in and of their own? I don't, I don't know. But that would be an error to fall into because uh, the prophet Isaiah even uh, goes as far as to state that even our righteous works are as filthy rags before a holy God. We are sinful through and through by both nature and by choice. We have rebelled against the holy God and each one has gone after his own way and we all are like sheep. We have gone astray. So one error is to think you are good enough that you don't need the mercy of God on your life. But there is another error we can fall into and because I know I've had those conversations, even within the church, that you think you are so far gone that you have done things that are unredeemable and that God will never forgive you, and so you don't even ask for mercy because you're too bad for God to clean you up. And both of those are wrong. Both of those are prideful because they put the focus on you and giving yourself far too much credit that you are both either good enough that you don't need God or you are too bad that God can't save you. Both take your eyes off Jesus and place them on yourself. And so I love what the psalm says here. Out of the depths, I cry to you, Lord. I am in a situation that is beyond my control, that I have led to by my own iniquity. He says, Lord, just hear my cry, hear my voice, and my pleas for mercy. It sounds just like the tax collector. He says, Have mercy on me, a sinner. A lot of y'all will probably be familiar with the name John Newton, um, who was a, um, a pastor in England back in the early 1800s, and uh, we all collectively remember him because he uh, wrote the words to Amazing Grace. And so he yeah, had just a, a phenomenal um, testimony of, of God changing a life. And so from a young age, he was very rebellious. He had a, this is a side note, he had a mom that prayed for him faithfully that he would join the ministry. And so moms, just remember that God hears you. But anyways, he, instead of uh, following God, rebelled from a young age, uh, became a sailor, which is not an industry that's known for its moral uprightness or gentlemanliness. But he made a name for himself as a sailor for being like the crudest, most vulgar sailor of all the sailors. And there were stories about him that said he could uh, curse you out for an hour straight and not repeat a word, which I don't even know how that works. But this is what they said about John Newton. And not only was he in an industry that was uh, kind of morally um, uh sketchy, he, he also participated in the slave trade. So he was a sailor on slaving ships. 
But the, the, the work of God continued in his life and he uh, began to realize that God was doing some things and churning some things and some of the things he had learned as a child began uh, to come back to mind on how he knew his soul was in jeopardy and he knew um, that because of his actions there was definitely no way that his righteousness in and of itself would make sense. And so he had this moment actually in his life where God was working on some things and pulled him to himself but he had been resisting it. But his ship, like so many, got into a storm. And for a sailor, even with his experience, this storm was especially terrifying. And he knew in that moment that he had no other options but to ask for the mercy of God on his life. And John Newton got saved. And not only that, the the prayers of his mom came to pass. And over time, as God worked in his life, he realized God had called him to the ministry. And he became a pastor, and he just wanted to be faithful where God had put him in this small church. And so as he was teaching through different aspects of the Bible, um, he um, several times would write hymns to accompany the passages he was teaching. And it was out of that that he did write the words to Amazing Grace as he reflected on the story of David and Bathsheba who David, trespassing gravely, um, took another man's wife for his own and then had her husband killed. And so uh, we get some um, excellent uh, psalms of repentance that uh, if you are just feeling stuck in your sin and you don't know how to talk to God about what you've strayed into, uh, just read Psalm 51 aloud and say amen at the end because it's David recognizing the graveness of his sin. And John Newton When he was teaching through that story of David and thinking about his own life and how sinful and depraved he had been and how God plucked him out of that and gave him something better and a new life to walk into, he wrote those words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And if we can hear that and not realize we're the wretch God still has some work to do in our hearts and minds. Towards the end of his life, and this is where I wanted to get to, um, so, you know, he, he spent a, long, a lot of faithful years in the ministry, 30, 40 years. He was uh, significant um, in, in preaching against the slave trade and influenced uh, some, uh, some of the men who helped abolish that in England, like William Wilberforce. He uh, was a vocal opponent. Um, but towards the end of his life, as he had you know, spent 30, 40, 50 faithful years as a pastor and proclaiming the word of God, uh, he has this quote that I just love. He said, My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. One, that I am a great sinner. And two, that Christ is a great Savior. All we like sheep have gone astray. But I love that Isaiah has a couple more words for us in 53 verse 5 talking about the coming Savior, says he was crushed for our iniquities. And so God has a plan for your sin, and it is not for you to deal with it on your own. He sent a Savior to be perfect and blameless, and so that your sin could be reconciled by his blood on the cross, so that that separation between you and your creator God, who desires an intimate and personal relationship with you, could be bridged by the work of Jesus Christ and not your own righteousness. And so all that we have to offer God is a plea of mercy. And so we talk about that a lot within church, both the mercy of God and the grace of God. And so the mercy of God would be God looking at our sinfulness and knowing that we deserve his righteous judgment and us not getting what we deserve. 
that our debt has been paid and canceled, as we just said, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done. And so the grace of God goes beyond that, that not just we get back to square one, we're back at zero uh, with an even scale, but God lavishes his relationship and his love upon us in Jesus Christ, that not we are just um, um, our sin canceled, but a, a relationship is established. And so the mercy of God, what we need to plead for is, God, please don't give me what I deserve because what I deserve by my actions, by my rebellion is your righteous wrath. But God goes beyond that in not only extending mercy to his people, but also his grace that he is going to dwell with us, that he is going to send his spirit into our hearts to begin to do the work of sanctification so that not only our trespasses are paid for, but also he's going to begin to weed out the different things in our life that led to us being in the depths in the first place. And so the mercy of God is us not getting what we deserve. But let's recognize that although uh, our, our sins have been eternally atoned for by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our sin, just like in this situation and just like Jonah, still leaves us in a situation. And so my rebellion, my unrighteous acts still might put me in a predicament where my eternal soul is satisfied in the Lord and I know I have forgiveness with him, but I still might have to deal with the consequences of the actions I've taken here in this life. And so, um, you know, one of the things I was thinking about is uh, so often, and definitely my default, even at this point in my relationship with the Lord, when I have trespassed, it's still to try to deal with it myself. Like, okay, how can I fix this? Whatever I've done relationally or morally, whatever it is, you know, I have that bent in me. I want to fix it and make it right. And we do so often try to assist God in fixing our lives. And so um, in, in my house right now, we're trying to instill uh, some early good habits with Lively. So just a little over two. But um, like most kids, she makes a mess everywhere she goes. Um, I, I think she's not delayed. I think that's normal. Um, and so not great with cups or plates uh, or any of the above, but we're trying to instill in her at this point, like, hey, hey, you made this mess. Help mommy and daddy clean it up. And so, you know, if she spills something on the ground, we give her a napkin and she is just terrible at cleaning. And so at best, it's a smear. At worst, she just misses completely. And so what inevitably happens, even after she has attempted to clean up her own mess, as her father, I have to come behind her and actually do the work. And so when we attempt to assist God in the cleanup of our lives, we're just delaying the work he actually wants to do in us. And so I love where the psalm goes after he has cried out to God for mercy and he has recognized, if God, if you are counting our sins against us, no, nobody stands. Like, none of us match up to that. And so, thankfully for us, but with God, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And then verse 5 and 6, what does he say? I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. And so I love uh, these different phrases that are recurring throughout the Old Testament. We talked a bit more last week about the idea of the fear of the Lord. Uh, but then there's this other phrase that happens so often, and it's wait on the Lord. 
And so I know when I have gotten myself into a mess, and even though I recognize, okay, like uh, my eternal soul, I can't save it, I can't fix it, and so I'm going to ask God to forgive me for my sins and trust in his mercy, I still want to fix the temporal consequences. And so even within that, I believe what God is telling us in these moments when we know that we have strayed off the path and we are in the depths, that things have been broken around us, that um, everything in me just wants to fix and get through it and pound it out and figure out a way I can mitigate uh, these consequences. What God is still saying in this moment when we have pled for his mercy is to wait and see him work. And so you can hear this longing in this author, even right here, that he repeats it. He says, my soul waits on the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. And then he thinks about it, and then he just repeats it, more than watchmen for the morning. And I wonder how often we have this longing in our soul for God to do a work in our lives, but we are not willing to wait long enough to see what he would actually do, and we try to take matters into our own hands. And so there is this longing that is communicated. And the only way I could think about it, uh, I think we talked about hiking not too long ago. I don't know how many of y'all camp. If you have ever been in the situation where you are camping and it is too cold for the gear that you have had, and you're, you're just miserable. And so what you do is all night long, you kind of look at the side of the tent and wait for the sun to come up. So I've never been a watchman on a wall, but I've spent some nights in some tents just longing for the sun to come up and to warm the things around me because my sleeping bag was insufficient. And so that's what it's talking about here is this desire more than anything else that you've um, experienced the mercy of God and now there is this longing in our soul for God to fix what's been broken. And I would tell you, if you have that, do not circumvent the word of God by trying to take matters into your own hands and fix it on your own, but wait on the Lord. Isaiah promises us that those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. And so that's what God is telling us, and that's why he says, for in his word I hope. And so this author is trusting that the word of God is going to come to fruition because what God says, he does. And that should not only just be an encouragement for the promises of God we read in the scriptures, but it should also point us to the work of Jesus Christ because there is a reason that there are all these Old Testament passages about the word of God and it not returning void and uh, placing our hope in the word of God because John makes it all make sense for us that in the beginning was the word and the word was Jesus. And so we are placing our hope in the promises of God because what he says he does, but we are also placing our hope ultimately in Jesus Christ. And so what can we do when we recognize our need for a Savior and that we have strayed off the path and we are uh, just pleading for the mercy of God and not trying to offer up any other promises, just asking ourselves and throwing ourselves at the feet of Jesus and waiting on him to um, um, work in the circumstances around us and to work in my own heart and life. Where does that leave us? And so the only thing that came to mind for me this morning as I uh, dwelled on the scriptures and thought about this is, is how Jesus actually behaved. Because so often in his ministry, he was constantly pulling people out of the depths. 
If you think about it, uh, you think about some of the physical healings or the different situations Jesus found himself in, and he was um, working miracles and doing these things. You know, it was literally, quite literally, people pulling people out of the depths of the situations they were in. And then um, several times as he had these encounters and then worked this miracle in their life, he, he left them with a really simple phrase. He said, go and sin no more. It's for freedom Christ has set you free. But don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh to put you back into slavery, into the sin God just rescued you from. And so we cannot deal with our sin and we cannot clean up our lives. But what we can do is fixing our eyes on Jesus. We can throw off every other weight and sin that so easily entangles us and run with perseverance. The race set before us, um, just loving Jesus all the way. And so, as I said at the beginning, as we hit these moments in our life, and it's a when, not an if, we throw ourselves at the mercy of Jesus Christ, trusting that his sacrifice is sufficient for my sin, and he has paid for it in full, past, present, and future. And then we, in love, follow our Savior And out of gratitude for the work God has done on our behalf, we put to death the things God has commanded us to put to death. And we trust in him that his way is better than my way. And so it is not God trying to rob me of some experience, but it's God trying to lead me into joy and life everlasting to follow his precepts and commands. And so when we trust in God, that's why the word of God tells us if we love him, we will obey his commandments. That's not a begrudging submission. That's a recognition that his way is just better than my way. Like I've tried my way over and over and over again. And one of the things I continue to come back to in my years of life, I've never once regretted being obedient to Jesus. There's a lot of other things I have a lot of regrets about, but following God has never been one of them. And so I'll just encourage you this morning, whatever is going on in your life, that God's mercy is sufficient to those who call on him. The last two verses. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Uh, one of the things I've been struck by as I've been reading all of these different psalms of ascent, and like we said, this is what the people of God use to prepare their hearts for, for worship in the temple, is almost every single one of them has some type of communal aspect to the instruction. So these commands God has given us are not to be done in a vacuum of individualism, but they are supposed to be taken upon the people of God together as we are all walking towards God. God is making a people for himself. And so it is talking about um, somebody uh, asking for the mercy of God, but before this psalm ends, it brings it into the gathering, into the community. And so it's not just Jared, oh, hope in God. It's all of us, Park Springs, place your hope in God. And so we need each other as that reminder as we are collectively going to worship there are going to be times when I stumble and fall and I'm trying to fix myself and be righteous enough so that I can make my way to God and I need you to remind me that none of my actions are sufficient but the mercy of God is good enough for what Jared has done this week so I need you in my lives to remind me to place my hope in God, in his redemption, in his steadfastness, in his love, because there are going to be moments when I'm going to rely on myself and it's going to lead towards failure. 
And I want to help fulfill that role for y'all, and I need that role for, for myself in my life, because as me and Pastor Charlie try to tell y'all over and over again, like we stumble and fall, and we have struggles, and we have issues, and we need the grace of God in our life just as much as you, and so we need to collectively as a faith family decide that we are going to be that encouragement to one another, that when one of us is in the depths, that we are going to be in that moment with each other and point each other back to Jesus, that he is sufficient for these days that we are facing. And so let us um, just not for a moment think that we are alone in this pursuit of God. God has given us the people around us to continue to press on together towards Jesus Christ. And so if you have never asked for the mercy of God in your life, every single week is an opportunity to meet with the Lord. And I just, I just know that there's those of us in this room that it's just kind of been an assumed, I go to church and so therefore I'm in. And let me just lovingly tell you there's something more. Maybe you've been in a thousand worship services and you know the right words to say and the right time to raise your hand and you have volunteered at VBS the past 12 years in a row if you've never been in the depths and had no other option but to cry out to God for your salvation and throw yourself on his mercy, you're missing out on the freedom that God offers to us by taking the sacrifice of our sin on himself. And so don't assume because you've attended church your whole life that you've actually experienced it because you might not have. If you've never humbled yourself and taken this position of submission of, God, I have no other options. I have nothing else I can offer you. All I'm doing is asking you to save me. You might not know Jesus, and I'm not trying to be judgmental in this moment. I am trying to care about your soul because I know the weight of trying to keep up the pretense of moral goodness without having a heart that's been transformed by a heavenly Savior. And so let me just invite you. I can't answer that question for you. I can just try to be faithful to the word of God and expose to you what it might mean in your own heart and soul to experience the goodness and mercy of God. But we're going to take a moment and we're going to pray and we're going to sing songs because we, um, we follow a flow every week. And so maybe you're trying to just wait out this moment till Jared shuts up and you can sneak out the door. And you've got about 12 minutes, so if you can hold out that long. But just know... Man, and I know so, I know, I know the instinct to grasp something tightly. There's so much freedom in surrender. And I'd love for you to experience that because I've, um, I've, I, I met Jesus when I was nine and there's been nothing that's changed my life more. So I'm going to pray for us and we're going to worship. Um, I'm going to be in the front row. Pastor Charlie's up here. We will close out the service with people being available to pray. But if God is working in your life, I'll just, I'll just say, why wait? Would you pray with me?